And hello, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday Night's Narrative, and it's a good one tonight. We're going to be looking at fascism in America, which seems to be the mainstreaming of fascism in America. And we're really excited to have Ruth Ben-Ghiat with us. She's the author of Strong Men. We've had her on the show before. You were so good last time. You really opened my eyes last time to what ha is happening around us, and we're glad to have you back again tonight. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. I am seeing a little bit of a lag actually now, which wasn't there before the show, but hopefully that'll clear up as we move along a little bit here. Uh, LB, how are you? you you've had a day. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to talk about my day. Okay, we're not talking about today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's good to know you're okay and I can see you and you're here and it's lovely. Um, yeah, I'm here. Did you watch the hearings today? <laughs> did you have a take on the hearings? I did. Um, I, I got a little... Uh, I got. I kind of had enough after. I think after Klobuchar, yeah. um, it, it just because it was clear that it was just going to be very milk toasty. Um, I, I think both the questions and the answers. And um, I, I did enjoy. White House took his entire time to make sure everybody knew that the FBI for the last four years hadn't answered a single one of their requests. He was really or good at least today. for as long. Yeah, he was really great. He was like, all right, you're not going to deal with the insurrection. Fine. I'm going to deal with the fact that you're not doing what you need to do as FBI director for us who have the right to have oversight over you. So I don't know what, what's up with Chris Ray. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I have my doubts about today. Chris Ray. I must say, yeah, I do. Yeah, I, I mean, the I, big one that was that was very doubtful in the beginning because of all his work for Gazprom as a as an yeah. attorney. It was I found that very disturbing, and then everyone said, "No, no, he's great. He's great. He'll be great." I I don't know that he hasn't been great. We don't know. That's the problem. <laughs> There's it's a big void of communication. Right. Um, so uh, he just hasn't acted like an like like an FBI director. You'd normally expect an FBI director in an event like this to be out front and center, and he, we haven't seen him. This is the first time we've seen him since January the sixth, and we've had this huge historical event, and he's done nothing uh, publicly about it. Now there's probably a lot of investigating going on. I'm sure there is. That's how 300 yeah. people got indicted. But sure. it's still a question of you know are the right people getting indicted? And I don't think you know Roger Stone or Alex Jones, any of those people have been interviewed or even questioned at this point. You know, which makes you go, hmm. Yeah. You know what? You know what? Uh, I keep thinking about, which is a little bit of an open ended question, it doesn't have to do with today. But, you know, all of my research shows that um, when you've had kind of autocrat leaning or autocrats in power, one of the things that happens is, is normally they're there for longer, like Trump, thank God, was only there for a few years. But they leave uh, the institutions and the personnel feeling not only demoralized sometimes, but deprofessionalized because they've been unable to do their job or, you know, the whole like what has happened to much of the civil service and government agencies where zealots and ideologues were brought in and corruption was tolerated. And so I keep thinking, I wonder, you know, what what is the toll? And it has very much to do with the way that January 6th is gonna be handled, right? Um, what is the toll of, you know, do they, are they deprofessionalized de by these four years? Yeah, and also the, the question for me is that was it a military coup? And I guess we'll know a little bit more when the head of the National Guard or the commander of the National Guard testifies next week. But it's still curious to me that no one's going down that path. And the FBI doesn't seem to be publicly investigating a, a potential military coup, which is, I think, very likely considering all the, all the lack of action by the Pentagon during that day. Um, 
what's your thoughts on that, Ruth, before we segue into military coups of, of a previous era? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, I see this and I've characterized it as a coup attempt. And one of the interesting things is with coup planning, it's not just about recruiting people to take part. It's also interestingly about making sure that um, on the day of operations, law enforcement, military, whoever would normally be prohibiting uh, the coupists from getting access, um, all the things that have to happen, um, they are kind of, the recruiting is also to make those people not take action. Mm -hmm. to stand down from their jobs. So we, we have to think about that too, because coup planning is, is a complex process. And what we're learning is that it went on for far longer uh, yeah. than we think, because at the beginning, it was all very convenient to focus on the people with animal suits and act like it was something you know, quasi spontaneous. And now, of course, we know better. But the, who didn't act? is going to be also very interesting because that's historically been part of coups. So stood down mm. or got in the way or made sure or sort of blocked communication. That's um, right. You know, I, obstruction, I'm obstruction. It's literally obstruction of justice in a right, funny it really way. Is. Really it really is. is. Yeah. That's a really yeah. good point. They were sacrificed yes. our Capitol Police for that. Yeah. That, and and potentially the congressman and and the vice president right. and potentially the speaker of the house. I mean, there's a lot of you know we still don't know about the full extent of the planning for what was expected that day, but we could get a little bit of a hint because apparently the inspiration of this came from um, both the March on Rome and the Munich Putsch. I think I'm saying it correctly, but if I'm not, you can help me, Ruth. It was 1922. You're saying not 1923. Is that right, Ruth? When the March on Rome happened? Yeah. And uh, yeah. 30,000 black shirts marched on Rome and demanded the resignation of the liberal MP at the time, Luigi Facta. They, the black shirts eventually prevailed and the king handed power to Benito Mussolini after a few days of, of, of negotiations. And of course, Benito Mussolini was the leader of the fascist party and he'd ruled the kingdom really until 1946. You know, the, this, this march on Rome was partly performative in that um, it was preceded, and this is after World War One, so we can't understand this without uh, in, in Germany and Italy without World War One. Right. And so these squadrists, uh, the black shirts, had been active for years. They had been founded in 1919 by that's when Mussolini founded them as combat leagues, and they were going around doing excursions with trucks. In fact, there was a moment in the in the you know when there was uh, kind of. Um, these uh, militias were forcing a Biden campaign bus off the highway. And this is what they would do. They would have these incursions and they would force their, they would, you know, kill people. They would maim them. They would force them to drink castor oil. So all of this was already going on. And the March on Rome was uh, this kind of gathering where they were going to come there and Mussolini you know, was going to take over. But the key is that Mussolini was invited by the king mm -hmm. uh, and, and after consultation with Facta to take over. And so Mussolini wasn't, this is similar to Trump says, I'll be with you. And then he wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, Mussolini took a night train to the capital from Milan and the black shirts were there. And what's very tragic though, 
is, and so they were waiting at the ports of Rome, the various like uh, entries to Rome, but there were only 30,000 of them. And at any moment, the king who in Italy was the commander in chief of the armed forces could have called the very large Italian armed forces to get rid of these guys. It would have been really easy um, had the army intervened and he didn't do that. So, so Mussolini had also checked with the US ambassador to Italy to make sure that the US was okay with this kind of march on Rome. So we think of uh, US support for coups and putsches starting in the Cold War, but this was actually the first time where the okay was sought, the tacit support of America. Yeah, and having the king on your side is very helpful when he's the commander-in-chief. Now, Donald Trump didn't have that here uh, in the United States, and that's a good thing. Um, and uh, But it did seem like he's got, at least the, for Mussolini, had the monarchy behind him. And then later on was the Vatican behind him. And those are the key reasons, ultimately, that he was able to, to take power so peacefully. And not only that, he didn't only have those elites, those traditional elites. And, and of course, like, Another a parallel of Mussolini and Trump is that, you know, it's often the most uh, impious, profane, corrupt individuals who end up being acclaimed by the biggest religious uh, groups. And you know, Mussolini's a total atheist and a sex, sex addict, and he was the one who made peace with the Vatican. And of course, we have Trump with evangelicals and Orthodox Jews. Um, but Mussolini didn't only have those elites, he also did stuff when he came in as prime minister it's really important he was prime minister of a democracy for three years and so during that three years he eroded democracy and then he took over um, as dictator but he he did all these things you know he was saying he was a former leftist revolutionary he was making sure that uh elites big financial and business elites of italy would support him by granting privatizations and this right. is something that all right-wing autocrats do. And we don't think about Mussolini as doing that because we keep thinking of him as a former socialist. But in 1923, so like months after he comes in, he privatizes the telephone industry, the insurance, like big sectors of the economy. And we don't hear about that enough. So I put that in my book and That's I had to do a lot of research on it because it's not known. Uh, right. So he had every elite um, behind him, basically. So we look in terms of coalition building, if you can look at it that way, uh, Donald yeah. Trump and Mussolini had a very similar coalition in terms of there's a lot of private sector, or at least very wealthy people uh, backing them. And also this drive towards, uh, with, you know, in Trump's case, it wasn't privatization, it was more about tax cuts for the rich, but, you know, serving the rich's interest, uh, when Mussolini was probably doing it with privatization. Well, and the key is that there's the combination of populist rhetoric and attracting grassroots people, including former socialists and revolutionaries, people who wanted to bust heads, people who liked the idea of revolution, because he took that revolutionary rhetoric from the left, right? And, and so doing that rhetorically, and then actually pleasing the, you know, what we now call globalists. Mm. Um, that hypocrisy is, so what we see is that hypocrisy is embedded um, in right-wing authoritarianism, and it goes all the way up to Trump, who's, you know, Mr. I am your voice, the forgotten, and then he's bankrolling, you know, immediately, like big pharma, mining, all of these things we know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in, in Italy because they did have an oligarchy. I mean, they had a royalty, right? Mm -hmm. um, and yet he was, it was almost like, was he courting the king by courting the king's friends or that in terms of privatization? Or were these 
people who were in business sector that wanted to have even more wealth? What what was the chicken and the egg? What, yeah, yeah what was the, the other side of that. The leverage was that the you know there had been this uh, like in some areas it approached a civil war between newly empowered socialists. Uh, after the Russian Revolution, Italy had the Europe's biggest left, Western Europe's biggest left. It had a huge socialist party, um, a very established anarchist and revolutionary tradition, socialist tradition. And the elites were terrified that this was going to be the moment they would lose everything. So that's why they backed Mussolini. They thought that they would use him. This classic thing. Same thing happened in Hit with Hitler later. They thought he. They thought they could use him and then kind of control him. So he'd do their dirty work, he'd get rid of the leftists, he'd put them in jail and stop strikes, and then they would somehow control him. And it didn't work out. Steve Bannon reportedly came up with the idea of launching the attack or the siege on the Capitol. We've known for some time that Bannon is a devotee of Italian thinker, and I'm going to get this wrong as well, Julius Evola. Is that right? Did I say it right? Yeah. Evola. 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 That's so much better. Thank you. Uh, Julius Evola, who was a proponent of something called the traditional movement. Um, so tell us, if you can, what is the traditionalist movement and, and how did uh, and how does Bannon become affected by that so many years later? I don't know that much about Evola. And uh, what I can tell you is that during this is scary, that during fascism, he was considered a kook. He was considered like too extreme for many fascists. And in fact, he didn't have as now he has a huge influence uh, and he had his own brand of spiritualism and he was into the occult, but he wasn't seen as a mainstream fascist. He was seen as like an outlier, um, too fascist for some fascists, which is now what probably makes him so appealing. Um, he's become like one of the gurus, you know, the, of, of the far right everywhere. But that's, that's really amazing that he was too kooky for most of the fascists, which says a lot. Right, it really does. It does. Uh, I, I have a take on this to share a little bit, just a quick thing. Sure. And that, um, you know, Steve Bannon really, really, really wanted to be a screenwriter, you guys. This is a true story. <laughs> he was a Goldman Sachs guy. God only knows what if he was swimming around with foreign intelligence back in the early 2000s. Um, and he was desperate to, to be in Hollywood and he had found his way in financially um, with probably the shadiest characters we had at the time. <laughs> um, but he tried to write and I think he wrote something about Evola. I don't know how much of this for him, he presents himself as this great scholar that he's found these obscure people because yeah. he's so learned. I think he was just trying to find like characters he could write screenplays about that no one had heard of before. I'm not kidding. And, yeah. and then learned about him doing that. And then, you know, and, it's really with this guy. There's a lot of just a hustle with Steve Bannon. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of, of hustle. He's not a great. He's not a great intellectual. He just finds obscure shit and then talks about it as if it's this great big part of history. Um, so it does, which it's not. Which so it doesn't surprise me that he just found the kook of the kooks, mm -hmm. but probably even accredits that person with a whole bunch of stuff that they don't even, shouldn't be accredited for, but no one's heard of it before. And they think, oh, Steve is, 
he's such an intellectual. He knows so all these learned. rare, obscure things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But he was well, trying to sell screenplays. That's it. <laughs> well, and he made, he's a far right propagandist. I mean, he made, he made yeah. films and, and he was, he was influenced by, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl in his aesthetic of his films. Yeah, but Evola was, Evola was very popular among neo-fascists in Italy and then in Europe uh, already from the 90s. And so when, when yeah. he was brought into the White House, I, I had a conniption because he, he's such a dangerous individual and he's yeah. so plugged into this whole history of neo-fascism. He's an open fan of Mussolini. Um, I have quotes yeah. going back for years. And I so it, it makes perfect yeah. sense, exactly. And you know the whole thing of striking at the state, and and I really connect. Um, in fact, in uh, right after Trump took over, uh, when they were uh, doing the ban on uh, travel f uh, from Muslim countries, I wrote a, an, a CNN op-ed that s said Trump and Bannon's coup in the making, and I'm still mm. amazed that CNN published it. <laughs> and amazing. it scared me to write. I actually had to go do yoga in the middle of writing it because I. <laughs> It was about this. I was predicting they were going to strike at the state. They were using psychological warfare yeah. and shock events and the whole like far right doctrine of kind of destroying things. And I was writing and I got scared and it and January 6 fits into this mold. And one of the uh, mainstream media narratives that was misleading is that after Bannon left, there was the idea that, oh, we didn't have Trump's ear anymore, so he's not important anymore. Yeah. He's not and he influential. Showed, and he shows up right before the insurrection yeah. and he's got full confidence of Trump to do this. Um, and, yeah. you know, the, the, yeah. the, the quote that I've seen regarding that he got inspired by the March of Rome, I can't find any, any evidence other than that small quote to know that that's actually true. But it does look, when you look at the event itself, there's so many similarities. Um, and then, yeah. you know, he's a, he's a fan of Mussolini and he's a fan of Evola. And you've got a, you know, you've got lots of good reason to suggest that maybe he did look at the March on Rome. The other thing that he has, of course, is he's very involved in the Vatican, um, which is interesting because so is Mussolini involved in the Vatican's affairs and vice versa. Well, he so, wants to be, yeah. Well, he wants, he wants to, be, to be, but he's been actively, uh, you know, trying to lobby for change in, in, in the Vatican. Um, and mm -hmm. it was in the Vatican that he said this, he said, Julius Evola and the different writers of the early 20th century who are really the supporters of what's called the traditionalist movement, which really eventually metastasized into Italian fascism. Now, you're saying that may not be completely uh, an accurate reflection of what Evola did, uh, but nevertheless, the fact that he was quoting this in in uh, in the Vatican, uh, where Mussolini, you know, would have operated many years earlier, um, it's kind of interesting that he's going back all the way there and drawing that line. And this was said in 2017. You know, there's this very scary uh, alliance between uh, far right Catholics and Opus Dei um, that recurs from uh, you know the early. I don't know about Mussolini times, but. Um, you know, Franco's regime, Pinochet right. in Chile, um, yep. and, and William Barr and, you know, many people very prominent in the Trump administration, uh, uh, Pat Cipollone, the White House lawyer. Um, there's right. many people with outsized influence who are connected to Opus Dei. It's very difficult to, to pin it on Barr. Um, quite frankly, uh, it's mm. difficult to figure out what whether Barr was actually part of this sect and what it really is. It, it's extremism. Okay, so it's like 
right. the farthest end of the extreme, um, you know, the traditionalist is interesting that Bannon's working that word in, which I know is a word connected to Evola, but it's also evoking a, a religious thing. Uh, mm. That's it. Right. right. Um, and, and so the sort of fundamentalism uh, and uh, so to think of it like that, because in every other sort of big uh, religious tradition, you get a name for that group that is way out there, right? Um, but in Catholicism, everyone's just called Catholic. And uh, even though it's part of Christianity, it's just, it, they don't have their own name and they probably should. So there is this Opus Dei. It is very much a, uh, a practice. It is a following. It is a sect within Catholicism. Um, and we have a lot of figures in there that are connected to intelligence uh, U.S. intelligence when it comes to U.S. Open State followers, and we have a lot of figures in there that are connected that work their way into justice in some manner. Also, the, probably the biggest, one of the biggest spies, moles that we ever had um, uh, in our intelligence agencies was in the FBI, head of counterintelligence, a guy by the name of Robert Hansen, who's still in prison now, and he was caught in the act of espionage working for the KG, working for the Kremlin. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, there was this big mole hunt going on within the FBI because we knew we had had a, a breach. <laughs> we didn't know who it was. And it was the guy who was in charge of the whole <laughs> division, uh, turned out. And this man it was connected to a very influential and prominent Opus Dei family. He had married into it. And his brother-in-law was Bill Barr's speechwriter. Nice. So, um, and Bill Barr was uh, at the Department of Justice at the time um, when... Uh, Hansen was the first time when Hansen was running around, running amok, um, and, and compromising everything. So, uh, so he knew this, it, and then still promoted him at a later stage. It, it's difficult to say whether Barr knew. Okay, but we do know that Hansen had gone to a confession, and the the Elvis Day priest, who was like the big the big guy, right, had not disclose that. They all decided, okay, well, even though his wife was with him, so it wasn't technically a proper confession, the church kept this secret. They knew that this man was a spy uh, for the Kremlin, um, and they kept it secret while he continued to sort of run amok. And that priest was also someone that a lot of the influential people still in Opus Dei and in government all knew, including, I think, Leonard Leo. Um, so, and Leonard Leo runs the Federalist Society, and this is this, it's a, it's a very extreme form of Catholicism. There are a lot of overlaps also with the CNP, the Council for National Policy, which is this very secretive Republican group uh, that Kellyanne Conway and Steve Bannon and all of these characters are in. Um, so there is, there's quite a bit going on with extremist Catholic traditionalist belief sets and i don't know that it's all about religion it seems to be more yeah. so about bending our country towards a fascist um regime it does a fascist christian it. regime right i mean at the end the of the day fascist christian regime that's right focused on it and they're all of their activity here is very heavily focused on injustice either in mm. the justice department or especially with yeah. the judiciary um, and getting, you know, judges on benches, lifetime appointments. That's difficult. Yeah, and, and, and think of the, there's been, and the transformations uh, within the bureaucracy, like within the, um, like the uh, Health and Human Services, the Office of Civil Rights, 
uh, was given to, yeah. you know, Roger Severino, who has connections to, you know, extreme, he's part of extreme uh, Catholicism. And, and so there's very broadly, and this is true of the global right everywhere, this kind of it's anti-secularization. Um, it's this kind of, um, kind of messianic um, counter-revolutionary mentality. And I really, I really see the Trump with, as we get more and more distance, um, you know, Trump, many things that went on are in the tradition of right-wing counter-revolution. And these alliances of extreme religion and the right and uh, attacks on all the enemies that we know that they are part of this tradition. Um, and it's interesting, he's out of office, but all of these uh, powerful alliances remain. Right. Right. And really against institutions, too. There's a real, yeah. not only a need to sort of take over the institutions, but to hollow them out, as Steve Bannon always said, yeah. yeah, deconstruct the administrative state. Right, which is what also Mussolini did, right, going back to to the early 20s there. That's exactly what he did in that first period of time when he was uh, um, running a democratic government. You know, he slowly whittled that away. Um, it's interesting to me that the Vatican is probably one of the few institutions that could be around for 100 years, with certainty at least, um, to do something like this. I mean, it's sort of like if they're involved in, in something in 1923, there are very few other global institutions that you could think about that would be trying to do this again in another country in, um, you know, in 20, 100 years later. Um, is, is, is that actually a valid observation that we should be thinking about, that the Vatican is maybe more political in general than we realize and maybe has more interest in, extreme, you know, in this extreme Catholicism or extremism than we've ever paid attention to because we've often viewed them as just as the church? I think it's, it's not a monolith. And I think that under the current Pope, uh, the traditionalists are very upset mm -hmm. because he's not yeah. one of them. Uh, and there's a huge, you know, backlash and he's really doing a lot of reforms and going against that tradition. And he himself was very influenced by, you know, living through in Argentina and seeing abuses of power. Um, so, yeah. so he's gone, he's made his mandate to go against that. Um, mm -hmm. One very tragic thing that um, isn't well enough known about the early 20s is at the time there was the Liberal Party, which is more like a conservative party, which is all the elites, all the prime ministers, FACTA, all the people who had been in charge of Italy. There was the Socialist Party. It was a reformist. It was huge. But there was also a new party, which was a progressive Christian party called the Popular Party. And they wanted to have a progressive, socially conscious, social justice notion of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And they were led by a progressive priest. And this party came to the, in the early 20s, it, it, it was new. And it immediately got like a huge amount, a, a very high level of vote. I don't remember what percentage, but it was immediately a force to be reckoned with. And the Vatican couldn't stand that. So in a very cynical survival mood, the Vatican um, basically allied with Mussolini and the deal, part of that deal was that the popular party had to be shut down and they chased the priest in charge. He had to go into exile. Oh. Yeah. And so they shut, what's very tragic is they shut down this progressive mm -hmm. Christian force, which could have fed from former socialism. It, it could have had a lot of, um, traction 
and a different vision of what Catholicism should be, but that wasn't what the Vatican was. Mm -hmm. So power politics won out, and it only in the post-war did some version of this progressive Christianity come back. Right. So it was like the path that that could have been taken, but it's not. It wasn't reconcilable with fascism, and the Vatican was. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com/narrative.